Science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. Hi, I'm Juliet Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote, named for Adam Smith, brought to you by Liberty Fund. To learn more, visit www.adamsmithworks.org. Welcome back. Since early 2020, COVID and COVID policy have dictated life across the globe. Most of the time on the podcast, I try to stay away from discussion about COVID, but this is a special occasion. Today, on April 25th, 2022, we'll be talking about the United States' response to COVID and its silencing of dissenting voices in the scientific community specifically in an urgent time of need. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya is one of those voices. He is a Stanford-trained economist, PhD, and MD. He is currently a professor at Stanford Medical School and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. And he went to Stanford for undergrad, for all of you who are wondering. Um, lots of Stanford. Welcome. Thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Before we get into it, I want to ask you this one question that I ask all my guests. What is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? <laughs> I have three kids uh, that and the, the oldest is 21. Um, I, I think the key thing is be curious all the time. Just because even people that trust are telling you things, uh, you know, that, that I think uh, continue to be curious even, even when, um, even when uh, you think your mind is made up. Be open to other voices. That's probably the most important thing to keep doing. And that's not just true for folks your age, but for everybody. And I don't know if it's more true now that we don't look for things that disagree with what we're saying or that go against our opinions, but it seems more glaringly clear now than ever that that is important and that is a value that a society that wants to produce knowledge should have. So thank you. Um, let's dive in. So as I mentioned before, for two years, our lives have been transformed by COVID. And two years, that wasn't just the pandemic. That was the government's response. Um, and that was brutal. In March 2020, on the advice of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, most of us locked ourselves in our houses for what what I thought would be two weeks, but it turned out to be a very, very long time. I didn't go back to school until the spring of 2021, and that's longer than a lot of people, but that's also not an exception to the rule, you know? So lots of bad things. Uh, we had to wear masks for two years. I still had to wear masks in school until just a few weeks ago, so 2020, 2022 in the spring. Um, and we had to get tested to travel out of the country. I had to get tested to come to school. We had to get vaccines, all of that stuff. The economy collapsed. Federal government spent $5 trillion in COVID release. Um, some states had vaccine passports. There were so many things that we did as a response to this. Yet a million people died. There were so many mistakes that were made, but what were the top three biggest mistakes made by public health officials during the pandemic? So I, th I think the first and largest mistake is a mistake of hubris or pride. Uh, we, we thought, and the public health establishment thought, that by imposing draconian measures like lockdowns, 
uh, that we could, could stop the virus from spreading, that we could protect large chunks of the population from being exposed to the disease, uh, to the virus and the disease. Um, and, 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 and by suppressing, acting to suppress the disease early, the spread of the disease early, we could stop the disease from having the impact it had. Uh, they did this without any reference to the harms imposed by the lockdowns. Hopefully we'll have some time to talk about those, but they were enormous and catastrophic, primarily for the poor, the vulnerable, and the working class. Um, so I think that's the, the primary number one mistake made. It's a mistake of hubris, this idea that we can control a, uh, the spread of a highly infectious respiratory virus um, in, in the populations and, and, uh, and, and eliminate it using the technologies we had. We fortunately had no technology to stop the spread of this disease. Um, the second, uh, the second biggest mistake I think during this is ignoring a, a, a the probably the most important epidemiological fact about this disease, and that is that there's an enormous age gradient in the risk of of the bad outcome if you get infected. Um, almost more than a thousand fold difference in the risk of, of, of hospitalizations or deaths compared to for people who are older versus people who are younger. Young people, although people, you may not, you might realize this because based on what you have heard, are actually very well protected against the disease just by fact of being young. The mortality rate uh, from the infection fatality rate among the young, young is, is lower than the flu. And that includes, uh, that's for, you know, uh, you can pick an age, but let's say, say under the age of 20, 30. Um, and it's certainly true now with Omicron. And certainly true now uh, with, uh, with the fact that a lot of the population is, is either COVID recovered or vaccinated. Um, and so you have, uh, you, you, by ignoring that fact, we basically ignored a key strategy, a very easy strategy we could have done, um, which is to, to protect vulnerable older people while not disrupting the lives of younger people um, quite so much. It's one of these things where if we had just paid attention to that, rather than trying to pretend that everyone is equally at risk, we actually would have had better outcomes. We could have devoted our attention and energy and creativity to thinking of how best to protect vulnerable elderly people um, and, and, and others with chronic conditions. Um, and I think that that by itself would have had an enormous benefit uh, to, to older. But we thought that by suppressing the spread of the disease, we could protect older people rather than acting specifically to protect older people. For instance, by better protecting nursing homes, uh, not sending COVID infected patients back to nursing homes, by better, uh, uh, by, by better uh, sort of changing how uh, we uh, uh, provided services for older people living in the community, um, things like that. that you know, a lot of creativity could have gone into that, but instead we relied on suppressing disease spread. And probably the third biggest mistake uh, is that we thought that uh, the public health establishment and big tech and, and a lot of the political establishment thought that, uh, that that free discussion of ideas was a public health virtue. They thought that it was dangerous to allow people to contradict what the, 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 the government authorities were saying is the right thing to do in order to gain compliance. That was an enormous mistake. Because I think the, the, the pandemic... And uh, the, our response to it would have been much better uh, and would have produced fewer deaths and fewer collateral harms had we actually permitted a full debate to happen in the public sphere. And we're going to get into what that looked like and the impact of that during COVID and now. Um, but first, 
At the beginning of the pandemic, there were a bunch of numbers flying around. I mean, no one knew anything, but we were throwing out random numbers about the share of people who would die if they got COVID. You were always skeptical of these numbers. They were really high compared to the actual numbers. Um, can you explain why you were skeptical from the beginning? Sure. Uh, so uh, the, the thing about COVID is that it, if it, it, the thing that people see and have so seen, uh, focused on through the pandemic is this horrible respiratory uh, disease that, that, that can produce some, you know, this leads land someone in the hospital. Uh, you get this viral pneumonia that kills you. That's probably the biggest way that people have died with COVID. The thing is, only a small fraction of people who get infected by the virus actually end up with that disease, that, that horrible outcome. I mean, it's, it's real, it happens, and the death rate among the elderly is quite high, uh, at least prior to, prior, you know, at least when in March 2020, it was quite high. Um, the, the, the thing about respiratory viruses uh, it, it, is that it's actually, because it produces this range of clinical outcomes, when, when I first saw the numbers about the death rates in February, you know, 2020, uh, I, my, my thinking went back to prior pandemics. What we learned in prior pandemics, respiratory virus pandemics like the H1N1 flu pandemic in 2009, was that many more people were infected than showed up in the hospital or came to the attention of, 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 of folks in public health. And I thought, well, you know, this is a respiratory virus. It seems like it spreads very, very easily and rapidly. It's surely the case that there must be many people that have been infected that we just don't know about. And that didn't get particularly severe illness, and so I was thinking back to the, to, to those prior pandemics uh, when I came up when I sort of had this hypothesis that maybe that same same is true here, and actually turned out to be true in COVID as well. Um, so I ran a couple of studies in the in the early days of the pandemic, a few studies in the early days of the pandemic, to look for antibodies in the population in California and, in, and around the country, um, and what we found was that. There were, you know, 30, 40, 50 times more people with evidence of having been infected and recovered in April of 2020 um, in California uh, than had come to the attention of the, the, the public health authorities. And what that meant is that the death rate from the, the, the for people who are, you know, just the average death rate, if you're infected in the community, leaving aside the nursing homes, where the nursing homes, the death rate is much higher, um, but in the community at large was 0.2%, so 99.8% survival, as opposed to the 3 or 4% death rate that the World Health Organization was saying at the time. And, I mean, I'm not a scientist, and you are, but thinking about that, that means that that's a ton of people who had COVID and didn't, and it either looked like a cold or the flu or something that wasn't out of the ordinary. So people didn't even notice. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the thing is that people notice what it, uh, what what their attention is on, and in April, March, April, twenty twenty, the world's attention was on this this new virus that was spreading around around. Their attention was on pictures of uh, of of people lined up in hospitals on ventilators. Their attention was on uh, you know in in in, in um, China this draconian response they had to to stop the spread of the disease. Their, their attention was on. Italy, looking at uh, older people dead uh, from the disease, lined up uh, in coffins in cathedrals because there was not enough space even in morgues. 
All of the attention was on the worst outcomes rather than the typical outcome. Now, those bad outcomes really did happen. They, were, they really were terrible, and we, they deserved to have it. We, just, we absolutely needed to take action. But uh, what should have happened is that we should have had a conversation informed by facts rather than informed by fear, which is the conversation we actually had. Um, and uh, I think that conversation would have resulted in a policy of protecting the vulnerable, older people and others who are really at high risk, not a policy of, of essentially harming the lives of the young from a, from a, uh, uh, in, in ways that harm them much worse than the virus could possibly harm them. Before we talk about what could have and should have happened, I want to ask about what did happen, the enforcement of the rules. Um, all of them were really broad. There were lockdowns practically everywhere, mask mandates everywhere in the United States. But there were so many exceptions that at least I thought, being at home in my room doing my podcast, I thought that it should have made people doubt the seriousness of these measures in the first place. For instance, when you're standing up in a restaurant, you can catch COVID. But once you sit down to eat, you can't. Um, when you're in a plane, you can catch COVID. Um, everyone has to work remotely because you can catch it in an office. But if you sell food in liquor stores or grocery stores, you're just not as at risk. Um, or we don't care, question mark. I don't know. Um, shouldn't that have been a sign? And how many people... Or like how much of the scientific community realized or saw that this maybe wasn't a really, I don't know if strong response is the right word, but it wasn't a uniform response. There were so many exceptions. It seems kind of like theater. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the reactions of the scientific community and public health were essentially uh, a desire to be seen to be doing something even if that, that something wasn't particularly supported by actual evidence, right? So when, um, uh, you know, doctors actually sometimes have this uh, response, especially young doctors will have this, where a patient will ask them a question they don't know the answer to, and they feel like they have to answer it, even if they don't know the answer. It's actually quite bad because what it does is it, it demolishes trust in the authority of doctors of public health. And that's what I think happened here. Right. So, for instance, um, the, the, uh, you, you remember all those plastic screens everywhere, the plexiglass screens everywhere. We still have them at school. It's ridiculous. At school. I mean, there's no evidence that they, they solve any problem. In fact, there's, there's some physics evidence that because they disrupt airflow, they actually might make it uh, might uh, you know, increase the spread of the disease. Um, the, the disease is spread by aerosols. Aerosols are like clouds. Uh, droplets are like rain. Mostly this disease seems to spread by aerosols. Like it's, it sits in the air for a very long time. So the key thing in a big crowded space is, is how good is the ventilation? Plexiglass impedes ventilation in, uh, in, 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 in rooms. Um, but we landed on it because it was a visible way to say, oh, yeah, I'm trying to be safe. Uh, a lot of the public health advice, you know, close, close this, close that, close schools, probably the single worst thing done during the pandemic, um, was made in the complete absence of evidence, in part because politicians and the public were demanding answers. The right responsible thing to do would have been for public health to say, we don't know 
uh, the answer as yet, but we're, here are the steps we're taking to get an answer. And then conducted studies, honest studies, and worked very hard to reassure the public and reduce fear in the public um, rather than uh, what, what public health did, which was to say that they made a virtue out of panicking the public. You know, the more seriously you took COVID, the better person you were, right? Um, that was a mistake, right? That That's something public health should never do. The key thing is that now, because of the ridiculous, I mean, you could point to just so many ridiculous things, um, you know, of, uh, you know, arresting people who went surfing. You remember that in, in, L, in, in LA in, during the early days of the pandemic, uh, the, 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 the crazy masking rules and exceptions, the, uh, um, I, I think, uh, because of that, the, uh, trust by the public and public health is at an all time low, at least as far as my career is concerned. And it's really tragic because public health is quite important for the health of the public. Yeah. I mean, I haven't been around that long. And to me, this is tragic because especially now being able to look back and understand that it never was as much of a threat to the majority of the population as we all thought. And some people still thought, think the damage, like I can see the damage still today. And that is uh, is disappointing. But before we talk about that and all the costs and things, um, let's talk about the Great Barrington Declaration. Can you tell us what it is? I mean, you've touched on a lot of the concepts within it already, but why exactly did you feel the need to write such a declaration? I mean, a declaration is like, what a statement, you know? <laughs> it's the first time in my life I've written one and probably the last. Um, <laughs> it, so, so I wrote uh, this Great Parenting Declaration in October of 2020 with two other very, very prominent, um, incredible scientists. Uh, there's, uh, there's uh, Dr. Professor Sunetra Gupta. She's probably at Oxford University. She's probably the, the world's best epidemiologist. And she, she has the, like a chair, like a chair at, at Oxford University in theoretical epidemiology. And then, I, and then Martin, Dr. Professor Martin Kuldorf, then of Harvard University, who is one of the very best biostatisticians in the world and epidemiologists in the world. Um, and he, we came together in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, it, in part because the three of us had arrived at this idea that, that, the, 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 that, the, that we, had, we all had very grave concerns about the lockdown-focused strategy we had been following. Um, I, I think we arrived there from slightly different angles, but we arrived at the same point. Uh, and it's actually, Julie, we talked actually touched on the themes already, right? So uh, there's this enormous age gradient in the the uh, the risk of severe disease. That's the most important thing. You know, people who are older have a very high risk. People who are younger, much lower risk of bad outcomes. And at the same time, the harms from lockdowns were devastating. We closed schools. That will have an echo effect throughout the lives of these children, especially poor kids. You have, you have now, poor, uh, you know, Kids who don't know how to read that are six, seven years old or older. Um, I mean, it's just it's it's a it will we're gonna have to like invest in trying to make sure that that that, that deficit is made up if it's possible to do so. Kids who are you know sixteen that dropped out, stop and out of school will never come back. Um, and this this happened all around the world. Like in, in Uganda, four and a half million kids because of the school closures for two years are never going to come back to school. Uh, you had uh, you had. Uh, health harms from the lockdowns, people skipping cancer, uh, cancer screening. So women will show up with late stage breast cancer that should have been picked up earlier. It it would have been picked up an earlier stage and they would have survived, but now they'll die. You have uh, patients with diabetes 
with uh, who will had these consequences of these diabetes that will uh, that that are that are that should have been prevented with good management of, of, of their blood sugar, but that skipped their, their appointments. People died of heart attacks at home because they were told that they shouldn't come to the hospital because it was so uh, it was so crowded it was, it was so you know full of COVID. Um, we just lost sight of the fact that health is a very broad thing, not just simply the prevention of one infectious disease, but something that's much broader. You know, we have tens of millions of, of people who were thrown into uh, dire poverty worldwide, less than $2 a day of income because of the economic dislocation caused by the lockdowns. In March of 2021, the UN estimated that 230,000 children in South Asia alone had starved to death as a consequence of the lockdowns. And just to give some local examples, um, uh, so we have a friend who's a PA at one of the Virginia hospitals, and she said that cancer diagnoses were down 50% in 2021, and that's not because there's 50% less cancer. Um, that's because people weren't coming in. So that that's terrifying. I mean, 50% is a lot. Um, and then also... One of our friends is a kindergarten teacher, and she has been dealing with the worst behavioral problems that the school has ever seen. And the kids just don't know how to act around each other. And kindergarten is a time to learn that. But usually you already come to kindergarten with some understanding of how to interact with people in a social setting. And they just have no idea. And so they're screaming, they're throwing things. They just don't know how to behave or how to treat other kids or other adults. And honestly, no one really knows how to fix that sort of problem because it's just because of this like delay where there was no development because you were just with your family all the time. Um, but how do you explain the change from how we responded to this pandemic and the way that we used to respond to pandemics? What is different and why? I mean, I think the primary reason why we responded differently is that the, that the, the, essentially the ruling class, the, the, the class of people, um, I call them the laptop class, uh, that actually they had jobs where they could replace it by work from home. And they made a virtue of it for everybody, even though 70 in the U.S., at least 70 percent of the population can't replace their job by work from home. Um, they uh, put their interest above the interest of children and young people, and even above the interest of vulnerable elderly people. Um, and they made a virtue of the things that they could afford to do, which is work from home. Whereas, uh, where, 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 whereas like, um, they ignored the fact that so, so much of the population really couldn't do that. Um, and essentially blamed them for the continuing spread of the disease when all they were doing was living their life in past pandemics. We didn't have the technology actually to do this. We didn't have zoom, um, that actually, I mean, you know, if, in some ways, if we did, if, if Zoom didn't exist, I don't think we would have had the lockdowns. That explains partly, at least in part, why we didn't have, uh, we never did this before in past pandemics. Um, it would have forced us to think more creatively about protecting older people without lockdowns. You know, actually, I want to come back to the the thing you said, because uh, I think it's so important. Uh, in July of 2020, 2020, one in four young adults seriously considered suicide, according to a CDC survey. One in four young adults seriously considered suicide. We basically, uh, in order to protect the interests of a certain group of people, the laptop class, we decided that we were, gonna, we were willing to sacrifice the lives of, of children, of young people, and even older 
older, poor, poor populations, the vulnerable. Th- that is the biggest tragedy of this pandemic that we, we, uh, threw aside the, the lives and well-being of young people, children, of the working class and the poor, and even the vulnerable elderly, in order to protect, uh, uh, protect essentially a, a class of people that didn't need so much protection, the, 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 the folks who could pre- replace their jobs by working from home. I don't know. I mean, I haven't been alive. Well, I guess I was alive in 2009, but I wasn't aware of it at that time. But um, this is really the first pandemic I've really lived through. I don't know if this is different from usual, but I found that doctors were really, really risk averse, very ill-informed and kind of tyrannical in their policy recommendations or their behavior. Um, Is that I don't know. I feel like that's not normal behavior. Why do you think that happened? I, I mean, I think uh, in part the the perceptions of doctors are set by public health. Public health made, a, made you know made, made a virtue of panic, and uh, the doctors who were at the front lines of caring for patients in the early days of the pandemic, you know, they really were scarred and uh, by by seeing patients die in front of them where they had no capacity to do anything. Um, they were also scared for themselves because you have this new infectious disease and now they're managing it and they're, you know, they're, they're being exposed to, to it. That panic, I think, led to the, uh, the, the continuing um, sort of over, uh, like the lack of acknowledgement of these harms. The, the doc, like a lot of the doctors, a lot of the public health folks um, were so scarred and, and, and fearful, they weren't even willing to look at what the data actually were showing. They weren't willing to look and see about the thousandfold difference in risk. They were, uh, they were, they, they made a virtue out of safety, even when um, the actions they were taking or suggesting that people take uh, weren't feasible or were harmful uh, to, to, to the population. I think that a lot of it can be explained by panic and fear. Do you think that your training in economics um, sets you apart in the way that you came at this pandemic and the way that you saw what was truly going on? Yeah, I think uh, for me, the, the, um, the, my economics training, it sort of primed me to think about uh, collateral harms and costs. I mean, whenever we, in economics, analyze a policy, the, the most very first simplest thing you have to do is you have to think about, okay, not just what are the direct effects of the policy, but what are the, uh, the 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 side effects, the, the unintended effects, and then compare the, 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 the these these bad effects against the potential benefits? And uh, for me, that's just natural. I think a lot of folks who were thinking about lockdowns in the early days viewed the pandemic viewed these them as essentially costless, when in fact they probably are the single most costly, harmful uh, public health policy that that we have at least in modern times ever implemented. Um, so I just posted a podcast with Chris Coyne on manufacturing propaganda in the United States on behalf of the military. From what I've seen, it seems like the same thing happened during COVID. I read the Wall Street Journal article that after the Great Barrington Declaration came out, Francis Collins, the then director of the National Institute of Health, wrote an email to Fauci privately which was later obtained through FOIA Freedom of Information Act request. Um, He denounced you and your co-authors as, quote, 
fringe epidemiologists, end quote, who deserve to be the subject of a, quote, media takedown, end quote. Can you tell us with your experience um, with propaganda that took place during COVID, but also with the general, I don't know, what is this attitude by our leaders? Like, how, what is your experience with that? I mean, what it is, is hubris, Juliet, that the, uh, the, um, uh, the people at the top levels of our scientific bureaucracies, people like Francis Collins, who was the head of the National Institute of Health, and Tony Fauci, the, the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, um, they, they control the, the funding and the minds, essentially, of countless scientists, the careers of countless scientists. They had come to think that they, that they solely possessed the truth. And any challenge to them, they thought as ipso facto illegitimate. They thought that these email, they thought that any opposition to their thinking about how to manage the pandemic was, it was, was illegitimate that, that just by fact that they knew best what to do, uh, and that anyone that opposed them was obviously wrong. So wrong that, 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 that they would justify actions that would normally be seen as outside the bounds of, of, uh, what a top-level government bureaucrat like Tony Fauci or, or, or Francis Collins can do, um, and so they—they, they, I think they thought they were acting morally by essentially delegitimizing discussion and debate. They and they viewed the fact that three uh, prominent epidemiologists at Stanford, Harvard, and Oxford were opposing their policy, writing publicly in a way to oppose their policy, was dangerous, rather than an opportunity for discussion and uh, to and justification of their policies and maybe even modification of their policies, which they were, they were pushing, which is lockdowns, um, they instead engaged uh, big tech. They engaged uh, media in order to, to delegitimize us and push us to the, to the fringe. Um, I started getting calls from reporters asking me why I wanted to let the virus rip, when in fact I was arguing for protecting the vulnerable, to shielding the vulnerable from the virus. Um, and it's, it's, it's one of these things where like I'm spent my career in, in science. It's actually normal to have lots of, lots of, uh, disputes and just, I mean, that's what science is actually fun because of that. Like you, you know, you're allowed to like disagree and then you look at data or you develop data or experiments to, to see who's right and who's wrong. That's part, that's the fun of science. This was something else altogether. This was just pure demonization and smearing in order to not have that debate in order to, so that they didn't have to justify the, the, the lockdowns. They could continue in their path of ignoring the harms of the lockdowns, which they did and, and have through the entire pandemic, rather than having to face the fact that their, their lockdown policy was failing, did fail, and was imposing enormous, uh, enormous harm on the population. So uh, what sort of I don't know. To me, I don't even know how to think about Fauci anymore because so many people idolize him. I mean, he's on socks and stuff. Like I've been to the airport and seen him on a pair of socks. And so I don't know. Like, is there a disconnect between how the scientific community now sees him and other public health officials and how the public sees him, do you think? Well, I think um, he's a very divisive figure, certainly in the public, but also in the scientific community now. That wasn't true before the pandemic. 
before the pandemic, I admired him actually. Like he wrote a textbook or he was an editor of a textbook, a very prominent one in internal medicine that I still have on my bookshelf. Um, same thing with Francis Collins. He was a, he was the, 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 the head of the human genome project, uh, the NIH, um, the very illustrious career as a scientist, um, had great admiration for him. Uh, but they both acted in ways that were, I'd say is beneath both of them. Um, and, and now in the scientific community, I'd say that, 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 you know, there's still people in the scientific community who uh, admire both of them and actually may even approve of how they acted during the pandemic. But I think in the public at large, that's not true. I think there's a lot of, I think there's an enormous amount of split um, in the public at large over, 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 over Fauci. Uh, um, and, and, in, in the pub, and the and for scientists, I think the key question isn't, like it's never in science. The question is: is is, is it shouldn't ever be, uh, you know, who do I trust? The question should be: what do the data show? What are the what are the what is, what's the right policy analysis? Let's have a discussion. It's not the, the focus is on the ideas, not the person. And so this cult of personality around Tony Fauci is actually really bad for science, and it's really bad for public health. Um, you know, he he's a, a a government official in control of a huge budget. On, uh, that funds scientists. A lot of scientists, their opinions, um, if, if they, they rely on on Tony Fauci's support in order to fund their career. Uh, a lot of you know, if you get a good, if you get an NIH grant, that actually lifts you up in the eyes of other scientists. Um, and so, you really, don't have a good sense of what other scientists believe or don't believe when you when you're when their self interests are at play like they are with with Tony Fauci. Um, and I think uh, you can get a sense of how uh, where, where the temper is of, of, uh, of most scientists by the fact that when we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, tens of scientists, tens of thousands of scientists signed on at risk to their own career. Some lost their jobs as a consequence of signing on. Um, I think uh, there never really was a consensus in favor of lockdowns. This was something that uh, that it was this, this idea that there was a consensus was created essentially by people like Francis Collins and Tony Fauci using illegitimate means to create this sense. What scares me a little bit about this is that he's not an elected official. And that's not to say that we should be electing scientists necessarily to be in that role. Um, But to have that much power at a time like this and to be able to control, which I don't think was the intent to be able to control something like that, to be able to falsify that there is this consensus and then create entire policy agendas, spending agendas around that scares me. Because looking now, that was not the right move. And it puts so many people in danger, mental health, physical health even. Um, But also, I mean, all the other costs, like the loss of school, even if that doesn't mentally set you back as a human being, it's going to damage your first your life path, but your education, all of it. And so, I don't know, I'm just a little afraid and or wary of what that means for the future. I mean, I think uh, the, it, it, it really does bring questions of like, how do we, how do we, how, how should we have uh, these kinds of decisions be made? Should, how, what role should scientists play in these decision making? Uh, normally, we ha- we uh, we have politicians, although we we love to hate them, but they but they serve a very important role. They mediate uh, between 
opposing parties in deciding what policies to take. And if they make a mistake, there's a, there's a, a harm, to, there's, a, there's a check to them, right? They can be voted out of office, they can get criticized in public, so on. Um, when instead you have scientists in charge who control the uh, you know, big tech's essentially censorship organization apparatus or, or, or the media uh, so they can order devastating takedowns of opposing ideas, uh, you have a really dangerous, it is a really dangerous situation. You, you need to have that, and, and especially dangerous because scientists do not actually have the wisdom by themselves to make these kinds of earth earth moving decisions, right? So, um, scientists, a scientist, and epidemiologist might be able to tell you what the infection fatality rate of the disease is, but the, but they will not be able to tell you whether it's a good idea to prevent you from visiting your grandma when she's you know in in in, in hospice, right? That's a that's a that's a very different kind of thing that depends on your values, your grandmother's values, not just simply what the risks are of the disease spreading. Um, scientists put themselves in a place where they really didn't belong. And that's really been the problem. Uh, that's been a, a big problem. And, and Tony Fauci in particular, he, because he sits on the, this huge pile of money controlling the minds of others, of uh, other scientists at the NIH, that's a, it's a conflict of interest for him to also participate actively and he much less lead the uh, the, the the debate the, the health policy debate over what to what to do about COVID, he should have stayed out of it because his very participation silenced a whole large cadre of, of, of scientists with the relevant expertise. Does expressing this view at all make you afraid for the future of your career or of your stance in the scientific community for future things that? could be as important as COVID. So I think uh, for me, I mean, I, I, I've been working on infectious disease epidemiology and policy for, for at least 20 years. Um, and for, I, I really didn't have much choice when the, uh, when the disease started uh, spreading. Uh, I, I mean, I basically, what was the purpose of my career? I thought if I didn't speak up. And uh, when I realized that, that there was actually potential uh, risk from doing so to my career. I, again, I had to make a different tr- a choice whether I should continue to do it. And um, you know, I think for me personally, um, I don't know exactly uh, if I can go back to my old old role. I, I now I have a much broader, bigger platform to to to, to talk. The question is like whether I can continue to be a, a scientist. I mean, I, I would love to dearly still be a scientist. Um, whether the scientific community will permit me to do that, that I guess remains to be seen. I mean, I hope so, because you are the reason why this voice was heard. Um, but also, I mean, if you keep producing data, I would hope that people don't just listen because it's you, but it's because your data shows what we should do or what factually is happening. Um, thank you so much for your time. I have one last question for you. What is one thing that you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? Uh, since we're talking about COVID, I can talk about my mistakes on COVID. Like probably the biggest mistake I made in terms of belief in COVID is that I thought that it was going to take uh, much longer to get a vaccine than, I, than we actually took. Um, and that, uh, that did change my thinking. I, I still think it was right to, to, to argue against lockdowns before the vaccine. And I would have still argued against lockdowns if I thought the vaccine in March, 2020 was going to come in 10 months. 
um, because I, th- I think the harm of those lockdowns were absolutely devastating to so many people. But that was, um, that it was it's interesting. That's something I didn't anticipate early in the pandemic. Um, and it, it changed the way I viewed what the right way to manage the pandemic once the vaccine came. Um, in fact, uh, I argued very strongly for using the vaccines to uh, protect older people, primarily vac- vaccinate older people quickly, and then and then lift the lockdowns um, once the vaccine came. Uh, so that, that was that was a, a, a change in my thinking. Once again, I'd like to thank my guests for their time and insight, and I'd like to thank you for listening to the Great Antidote podcast. The Great Antidote is sound engineered by Rich Goyette. If you have any questions, any guests or topic recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote at gmail.com. Thank you.